A war correspondent is a reporter who gets embedded with the troops. He wears camouflage, a flak jacket. He works on the front lines. He's in the line of fire. His job is risky. It takes nerve. But because of his courage, we get an unprecedented view of the battle. Well, in this section of Revelation, John is acting as God's war correspondent. He's reporting on the spiritual battle. In fact, his assignment is the spiritual battle, the battle of all battles, the battle that will end the age, the war between God and Satan and its culminating conflicts. In chapter 11 of Revelation, John sees in Jerusalem. He's there in Jerusalem. And he sees God's two witnesses. At first, it's a slaughter in the streets. Satan kills his two targets, these two witnesses. But God says no, and he raises them up again. God proves that he has the final say. In chapter 13, the next chapter, John will again go behind enemy lines to bring us an up-close expose on an emerging tyrant that's referred to in the scriptures as the beast. It too is a chilling chapter. But of all John's journalism, chapter 12 is where he wins his Pulitzer. For what happens in chapters 11 and 13, don't just break out with the two witnesses. It's actually a long-running conflict. It's been brewing since the beginning. And John knows if we're to really grasp the nature of this conflict, we need some background on the battle. And that's what we find here in chapter 12. The earth is in peril. The nation of Israel is the focal point of the conflict. And the question that begs to be answered, how did we get here? Well, chapter 12 is an overview. Verse 1 reveals that the struggle of the ages begins with a woman. Chapter 12 opens. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. And this isn't just any woman. She's a lady. She is a spiritual debutante. And that's not all. She's pregnant. He says, then being with child, he cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Here's the first question. Who is this woman? Now recall, John is on the island of Patmos. It's a Roman penal colony. He's surrounded by prison guards, and to avoid censorship, he wants to disguise his message. As a Hebrew, John uses Old Testament symbols and idioms. That would make sense. And thus, the Old Testament becomes the decoder ring here in Revelation. And where in the Old Testament do we find this woman? Well, very clearly, we see her in Genesis 37, verse 9. There it quotes the Hebrew forefather Joseph. I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bow down to me. There she is in Genesis 37. That's when Joseph's dead, the patriarch Jacob, who later changes his name or has his name changed to Israel, he asked Joseph, shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed bow down to the earth before you? See, Joseph had 11 brothers, and Jacob saw the sun, moon, and 11 stars as the Jewish family. 
Biblically speaking, it is clear the woman in Revelation 12 is the Jewish people. One Bible teacher once said, you can learn a lot about a person's entire theology by how they interpret the woman in Revelation 12. And I've come to agree with that. You know, there are folks who interpret the woman here of chapter 12 as the Virgin Mary. Since her child turns out to be Jesus, that's understandable. But Mary was a mother on earth. Notice this woman is occupying heaven. Mary is never pregnant in heaven. She delivered her child on earth. Roman Catholics refer to Mary as the mother of God, but this is a title that the Bible never bestows. Mary mothered God's son on earth, but in heaven, she's one of many believers. She is a child of God, not the mother of God. Mary was a godly lady, but certainly we should never make more of her than the Bible does. Don't embarrass Mary. Other folks see this woman as the church, but this can't be, and here's why. The church didn't birth Jesus, just the opposite occurred. Jesus birthed his church. Well, I believe strongly that this woman is the nation Israel. John couches her in unmistakable symbolism. Genesis 37 and the patriarch's dream clearly affirm her identity. Now, it's interesting. Human beings stay pregnant for nine months. Rhinoceroses, though, they're pregnant for 15 months. And did you know, ladies, that elephants are pregnant for 21 months? Ladies, be glad you're not an elephant. But realize the nation Israel was pregnant with promise for 4,000 years. God promised to the founders of the nation, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, still later, to King David, that through their collective lineage, a Savior would be born. That salvation would come through their descendant. And Jesus was born of Jewish stock. Jesus was the promised child of Lady Israel. Now, if I were president of the United States, my first proclamation would be special treatment for all pregnant women. Pregnant women could park in handicapped spots. I would see to it. They could go to the head of all checkout lines. Pregnant women would be given guardianship of the remote control as long as it wasn't football season. <laughs> if you know a pregnant mom, I hope that you're treating her with extra special care. But that wasn't the case with this woman in Revelation chapter 12. For when she's ready to deliver, she's threatened by a devouring dragon. Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. It seems to be something out of a Jurassic Park movie. A seven-headed dragon is stalking this woman. And there's no need to speculate here as to the identity of this dragon. Just drop down to verse 9. And John mentions him by name. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. You remember the first time we see the devil is in Genesis. And there he appears in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve as a dragon. Of course, you'll say, but Pastor Sandy, I thought he was a snake. Remember when the serpent was cursed. You remember what the curse was? 
He would flop on his belly. He would crawl on his belly. He would eat the dust and crawl on his stomach. I assume from that, but that beforehand, he had legs. And what is a dragon but a serpent with legs? This is why Chinese restaurants creep me out. They're always decorated with dragons. But that's the biblical, the ancient symbol of Satan. Notice verse 4 provides us some history on this dragon. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. You know, in both Ezekiel 28 and in Isaiah 14, we learn of the dragons or of Satan's origin. He was formerly an archangel named Lucifer. He was a beautiful, musical creature, Ezekiel tells us. Some folks think that he was heaven's worship leader. That is, until pride entered his heart. And at that point, he stopped worshiping God, and he wanted worship for himself. That's when God gave him the boot, kicked him out of heaven. Luke chapter 10, verse 18, there Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus was there at the expulsion of Lucifer. And it wasn't just Satan that fell. According to verse 4, Satan took a third of the stars of heaven with him. The stars of heaven is a biblical idiom for angels. We find this in Job and other places. When Satan fell, a third of God's angels joined in the coup d'etat. Today, these fallen angels are now Satan's demons. This dragon stalks the lady until she gives birth and then tries to harm the child. John tells us in verse 3, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, whenever we're in Israel, and I'm looking forward to going there again, we visit the olive wood store on the Mount of Olives. One year, I bought Natalie, my daughter, a beautiful nativity set that was made from real Israeli-grown olive wood. She treasures it. Most nativity sets, including Natalie's, come with a Mary and a Joseph and an angel and a shepherd and a few other barnyard animals. Natalie has a couple of camels because I'm a good haggler and I was able to get the guy to throw in the camels. But I've never seen a nativity display with a dragon. Have you? And yet it's biblical. Here's the real nativity scene. The battle of the ages. Did it negotiate a Christmas ceasefire? Messiah is born while a dragon with seven sets of sharp teeth is licking his chops. Instead of bowing to this baby, Satan tries to devour him. He prompts King Herod to slaughter Bethlehem's toddlers. You know, as John overviews the spiritual war of the ages... He correctly sees the birth of Jesus as the pivotal battle, the pivotal point in the battle. Apparently, Satan also sensed this. That's why he was in full dragon mode to resist Jesus' coming at his first coming. This was the one victory that signaled a turning point in this age-old war. In this child, God slipped behind enemy lines. If Satan had been able to thwart Jesus' birth, he could have kept God at bay. He could have prohibited God from invading Satan's turf. Satan could have ensured his gains. 
But this is now the beginning of the end of Satan, for Jesus was born, and he lives. There will be more skirmishes to come, but now that Jesus has invaded time and space, it's only a matter of time before victory is won for God. The dominoes have now started to fall, and Satan knows it. Jesus' sinless life is to come, and his miracles, and his teaching, and his crucifixion, and his resurrection, and his ascension back to heaven, and the establishment of the church, and it's all leading up to Jesus' triumphant return. Verse 5 tells us, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Here's language right out of Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The child promised to Israel will rule the nations with a, quote, rod of iron. This is what all history is barreling toward, the kingdom of the Christ. When Jesus is returned, when Jesus returns to earth, he will rule with a rod of iron. It'll be his way or the highway. When Jesus comes back, he won't be running for office. He is the king of the jungle. And he will rule and reign forever. Ultimately, this male child will rule all the nations of the world. But what about the woman who birthed him? What will happen to the Jewish people? And John tells us in verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now here John fast forwards from the time of Christ to the end of the age. From 32 AD to a time still future. If this were a movie, a caption would suddenly appear on the screen between verses 5 and 6 that would read, thousands of years later. The time frame, 1,260 days, refers to the scene we saw in Revelation chapter 11. You remember in Daniel 9, it predicted a final seven years in which God will wrap up his plans of the ages, for the ages, and for his people Israel and the world at large. The seven years starts with a peace treaty. A Roman leader will strike a deal with Israel. And at that point, you can mark off seven years from the signing of that treaty to Messiah's return. Daniel also tells us of a terrible deed that will occur at the midpoint, at the 1,260-day mark. This leader that Israel trusted enters the temple and will desecrate God's altar. And this betrayal will scare Lady Israel, so much so that she'll flee to a refuge that God has prepared for her in the wilderness. And Israel will be supernaturally fed and protected for a final 1,000 260 days, as John sees here. You recall after the Hebrews exited Egypt, God fed them in the desert for 40 years. You remember that? (laughs) That means that he can handle 42 months. Well, this future Roman leader is not only going to scare Lady Israel, but also cause turmoil in heaven. Verse 7 tells us, And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Michael has been relishing this battle for a long, long time. He's been chomping at the bit to put this guy in his place, and the day will come. Apparently, this beastly blasphemy that occurs in the temple is what causes war to erupt in heaven. 
The angel Michael bounces the dragon in his cronies. And what in, what in the world will this war look like? I have no idea. I mean, how do angels and demons do combat? Wow. I bet it's vicious. I bet it makes an MMA cage fight look like a ballet. You remember in 2 Kings chapter 19, we're told that a sole single angel killed 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night. I'm telling you, angels have serious swag. This battle royale makes a Star Wars movie look like a dart throw. But in the end, Satan gets kicked out of heaven. And from this point forward, whenever Satan tries to swipe his badge, the monitor reads, access denied. Aren't you glad? Verse 9 sums it up. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 16, looks ahead and speaks of Satan when we finally get a chance to lay our eyes on him. Isaiah says, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Is this the man? Understand, Satan was stripped of all his power on the cross of Jesus Christ. He's now puny. He's a feeble little thing. He's a 98-pound weakling. And when we see him, it'll dawn on us. The only power he had over us was what we chose to give him. It was our lack of faith that allowed him to bully us around. Obviously, no one in heaven is crying over Satan's banishment. In verse 10, heaven erupts in joy and praise. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. That name Satan, it means adversary. Devil means accuser. And Satan wants to bury us under an avalanche of accusation, of guilt and condemnation. And yet Jesus was buried so that we don't have to be. He died in our place to gain our pardon. There is no condemnation in Christ. Hang your hopes on Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't you let Satan use your failures to destroy your faith. Jesus is greater than your failures. His forgiveness is greater. His pardon is greater. Here's a great quote to memorize. Whenever the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. Our keys to victory are in verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. And here's how you build a strong faith. You cultivate these three attitudes. First, you lean on the blood of the Lamb. God's power is in Christ's blood. Second, you speak the word of your testimony. 
You get used to speaking your testimony. It's been said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. You tell people what's happened to you. Use your testimony. There's no denying a testimony. When we share what Jesus has done in our lives, it reaffirms, even to us, the reality of our relationship with God. And then the third attitude that makes faith strong is a selfless life. They did not love their lives to the death, knowing that some things are more valuable than life itself strengthens our faith. We all need to live as an overcomer, and we can through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And don't love, do not love your life to the death. Now, a crowd now appears in heaven. There are people who've tangled with Satan before and have overcome. And in verse 12, we read, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Once Satan gets kicked out of heaven for that last 1260 days of that seven-year period. This will not be a good time to be alive on planet earth. For Satan will be kicked out of heaven and he will be angry. He'll be mad and he'll take out his vengeance on the inhabitants of earth. You see, from here on out, Satan is on the warpath. He'll be seething and frothing with resentment and he'll try to strike back at God as viciously and violently as he possibly can. He'll go for the juggler. He'll try to hit God where it hurts the most. And guess where he aims? Well, you know, if you wanted to hurt me, you'd go after my kids. I'd die a thousand deaths before I'd see harm come to one of my children. And here Satan goes after God's kids, the Jews. See, I believe all bigotry is sinful. It's it's horrendous. But anti-Semiticism is especially sinister. You see, Satan hates whoever God loves. The devil crucified Jesus, God's only son. But now Jesus is in heaven, out of the devil's reach. Satan persecuted the church. He's doing so today. But the rapture will take us to heaven and put us out of the line of fire. So who's left? Well, Satan will zero in on the one people group left on earth that God has chosen to favor, and that will be the Jews. Satan will try to destroy the woman who birthed the male child. Satan is no gentleman. He'll try to rough up Lady Israel. He's never learned. You don't hit girls. And this is what we're told in verse 13. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. His evil reflex is to attack God's people, Israel. You remember what Jesus told the Jews in Matthew 24, verse 16. He said, when you see the Antichrist defile the temple, and I quote, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In other words, at this point, run for the hills, for terrible persecution is on the horizon. This is what we see now in Revelation, verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. With speed and agility, the Jews will vacate Jerusalem. They'll head down for the wilderness. 
You know, some folks identify this great eagle in verse 14 as a first century description of a modern military transport plane. Perhaps the Jews left in Jerusalem at this time will get airlifted. You know, there is a passage that may identify the location of this end times wilderness hideout that God has prepared for the Jews. In Isaiah chapter 16, verses 3 and 5, there Isaiah predicts, Let my outcasts, God's outcasts, dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. Another nickname for the Antichrist. For the extortioner is at an end. In Isaiah 16, verse 1, the prophet mentions the Moabite city of Selah or Petra. And you've seen Petra. You probably have. It's the backdrop of those final scenes in that movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That's Petra. The city of Petra is in a valley about one square mile. A canyon a mile long by a few feet wide serves as its entrance. And its narrowness is what makes it so defensible. And this may be where God keeps the Jews out of Satan's reach during this last half of this terrible time of tribulation. In the wilderness, the woman, we're told, is nourished for a time and times and half of time. Here's again a third way that John earmarks the same time reference. He's talked about 1,260 days. He's talked about 42 months. Now another Hebrew idiom that equals the same time period, a time, time, and half a time, or three and a half years. For that period of time, God protects Israel from the presence of the serpent. Yet after the Jews vacate, Satan opts for plan B, verse 15. And so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. You remember a flood is another biblical symbol. It's used often for an invading army. And this could be the genocide squad that the Antichrist sends to exterminate the Jews who dared to flee from him. You know, at first, Antichrist will appear to be a man of peace, but in the end, he turns into a Hitler. And in verse 16, God again comes to the rescue. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Once again, God will come to the defense of Israel Sounds like a Middle East earthquake at the right time in the right place. A fissure in the earth's crust will rescue the Jews. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. I mean, he can't kill her. He wants to, but he can't. God keeps protecting her. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. When the dragon fails to spill Jewish blood, he'll go after any and all believers left. Anyone who embraces Jesus as Lord will become a target. You don't want to be alive at the time. You want to go in the rapture with the church before all this begins. Well, chapter 13 starts, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Now, throughout the Bible, the sea is symbolic of a vast ocean of people adrift. We still use this idiom today in English when we talk about the sea of humanity. Here John sees a global leader rising onto the world's political stage. Now in popular 
culture, this diabolical leader is most often referred to as the Antichrist. But throughout the pages of Scripture, he goes by a whole host of various other names. Here's a sampling. He's called the Adversary, the Assyrian, Belial, Bloody and Deceitful Man, Branch of the Terrible Ones, Crooked Servant, Cruel One, Destroyer of the Gentiles, Evil Man, Little Horn, Man of the Earth, Proud Man, Spoiler, Destroyer, Extortioner, Vile Person, Violent Man, Wicked One, Willful King, Lawless Man, Man of Sin, One Who Comes in His Own Name, Son of Perdition, the seed of the serpent, an unclean spirit, to name a few. Aren't you glad you don't have any of those nicknames? Here is a person so evil, so wicked, so ruthless, so vile, so unconscionable, so animalistic, that Revelation 13 adds to his list of names with the unflattering term, the beast. That lets you know a little bit about him right there. The beast. And like most beasts, he travels in a pack. He heads a spirit-inspired gang of three. Chapter 13 is going to spotlight the beast, another beast, and then the image of the beast. I call them the beastie boys. And they are far more sinister than the band with the blasphemous name. The goal of these beastie boys is to deceive and extort and eventually devour. I'm telling you, the world is a jungle out there. And jungles are full of beasts. But be thankful that our Lord Jesus is the king of the jungle. And as we'll see in the coming chapters, at a time and at a place of his choosing, he'll hunt down these beastie boys and put them in their place. Now this beast comes having seven heads and ten horns, and his horn, on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. This beast is a reflection of the dragon in chapter 12 with his heads and his horns. And now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. Here's a ferocious beast with a leopard's speed, with a bear's paws, with a lion's teeth. His authority and his power is from that dragon or Satan. Now, this beast that John sees from the seashore is a man. We know that. But this man parallels nations that are described in Daniel chapter 7. The prophet Daniel was given a vision of 2,500 years of Gentile world domination. He saw four beasts rising out of the sea. The first three empires were easily identifiable. The lion was Babylon, the bear was Persia, and the leopard was Greece. But the fourth animal that Daniel saw was a beast, dreadful and terrible, and it's during the days of this last beast that God sends his Messiah to establish his kingdom on the earth. Now, in one sense, this terrible beast was Rome. Rome followed Greece. Ancient Rome was known for its ruthlessness and its cruelty. They were a terrible beast. 
But the Roman Empire crumbled in the 6th century AD, and still God's kingdom, the Messiah, has, has yet to come, or at least yet to come back to establish his kingdom on earth. And that's why Daniel chapter 7 implies that a future revival of this old Roman Empire is on the horizon. It's a beast, dreadful and terrible. This is a last day's resurgence of what was ancient Rome. And this is why Bible students have been looking for centuries for the emergence of a European superstate. And today, for the first time in 1,400 years, we have just such an entity emerging on the earth. Rent a car in Madrid, and you can drive from Madrid to Rome, from Rome to Paris, then on to Berlin, then to Prague, then to Budapest. You don't have to stop at a single national border. And you can pay your meals and lodging with a single currency, the euro. Welcome to the European Union. And here John sees a leader of this last day's Rome, a beast with seven heads and ten horns. I believe that he will one day take over the direction of this European superstate. Revelation 17, verse 7, we learn that the seven heads represent a geographical place. These seven heads are seven hills, according to Revelation 17. And in the writings of antiquity, Rome was almost always referred to as the city on seven hills, the political entity that Satan seizes control of and uses in the last days is a revival of Rome. It will obviously be based in Europe. The ten horns represent a political base. We've got a geographical place and a political base. It seems that this European confederacy that becomes Satan's end-time power block will consist of ten horns or ten nations or somehow ten divisions. And this beast will be the ruler of this future empire. You know, today... European countries are looking for a dynamic leader, someone who can address the quagmire of their finances, the political, the economic problems that they are facing. Fifty years ago, Paul Henri Spock, an early organizer of the European Union, he made this comment, we don't want another committee. We want a man of stature to hold the allegiance of the people and lift us up out of the economic mess that we've gotten ourselves into Send us a man, whether he be God or a devil, send him. And it's still true today. Europe is desperate for a leader. In the 1930s, when Benito Mussolini took over in Italy, he was asked how he came to power so quickly. And he answered, I found Europe full of empty rooms and simply walked in and took one of them. Well, the beast will exploit a leadership vacuum. He'll come to a Europe in disarray. And he'll provide answers. You know, ironically, Jesus has been faithfully knocking at the door of every human heart for the last 2,000 years. Jesus has timeless, eternal answers, not temporary patches. And yet most folks keep their doors bolted to Jesus. They keep him on the outside. And yet when the beast knocks, they're going to fling it wide open. And verse 3 reveals why the beast is so persuasive. Why he's able to deceive so many. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. 
Now think about it. What if John Kennedy had walked out of Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas? What if he had survived a bullet to the brain? I mean, such a recovery would have been held as a miracle. And you see, this is what's going to bump up the approval ratings of the beast. He's going to recover from a potentially lethal wound, perhaps survive an assassin's bullet. Notice verse 3 doesn't say the beast rises from the dead. Nowhere in the Bible is Satan given power over death. It's as if he had a mortal wound. This might just seem like a miracle, but it does the trick nonetheless. And his recovery rockets him to superstar status. Zechariah 11 verse 17 speaks of his injuries. His arm shall completely withered and his right eye shall be totally blinded. The Antichrist will lose an arm and an eye. Again, Jesus lost far more for us. And his crucifixion was no illusion. And yet the world has and will ignore his scars while they run after a beast. Verse 4, and so they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And this is Satan's ambition. This has been his ambition from the start. From his days as heaven's choir boy, he wanted men to worship him instead of worshiping God. And now the beast gives him what he wants. As Jesus draws men and women to the Father, the beast will capture the souls of men and enslave them to Satan. In Revelation 13, we learn that Satan wants all the world to worship the beast, not the babe in the manger. John finishes verse 4. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Again, the time frame that we saw in previous, the previous two chapters 42 months, 1,260 days, or three and a half years. Represents the last half of Daniel's 70th week. Now remember, Revelation chapters 6 through 19 record God's judgment of this world during this final seven-year period called Great Tribulation. Chapters 12 and 13 are a parenthesis that zero in on events that occur at the halfway point of the seven years. Now, up until now, the Antichrist has been preaching tolerance. He solved many of mankind's problems. World religions are now cooperating. Jews and Muslims are living in harmony. Perhaps they're even coexisting on the Temple Mount. We talked about that last week. When the narrow-minded Christians are taken out at the rapture, the Antichrist will probably sell his coexist theology. He'll probably explain the rapture as the evolutionary leap forward that's eliminated all those bigoted Christians. They were stunning human potential by insisting on only one right way. Everybody will sport the bumper sticker. Coexist. And the world will be poised for a new age. But that's when halfway through these final seven years, the beast will show his fangs. He's not the peaceful ruler that he's claimed to be. He's not the tolerant person that he has postured himself to be. This personification of evil will murder God's two witnesses. He'll set up an image of himself in the temple, and he'll require all of the world to bow down and worship him. Matthew 24 calls it, the abomination of desolation. 
According to Revelation 12, it's after this blasphemy that war erupts in heaven. Michael boots out the devil. And to retaliate, Satan attacks God's people, the Jews. There's a quote by revolutionary war leader William Penn. Those who will not be governed by God will be ruled by tyrants. And never in history will this be more applicable than in the 42 months prior to Jesus' return. Until the be- under the beast, the world will be ruled by pure evil. Verse 6 reveals more. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Suddenly, this future Fuhrer will oppose everything that's of God. He'll trash God's name, even God's temple, even his saints. He'll look to heaven and ridicule you and me. We're told and it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. In the great tribulation, the followers of Jesus will be in the Antichrist crosshairs. Now, here's a great proof text for what we believe as the pre-tribulation rapture. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The word prevail in Matthew 16 and the word overcome here in Revelation 13 are the same Greek word. Here the Antichrist prevails against the saints. And yet Jesus said that the gates of hell would never prevail against his church. Thus the saints here in verse 6 can't be part of the church. I believe these are the folks who will be saved in the great tribulation. These will be the Jews that will be converted while the church is in heaven worshiping Jesus. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. The beast will rule globally. You know what Nebuchadnezzar, what Alexander the Great, what the Caesars of Rome, what Genghis Khan, what Napoleon, what Hitler, what Stalin, all failed to accomplish. A world dictatorship this future leader will accomplish. You recall the story of Nimrod in the Tower of Babel? It was man's first attempt at globalization. Nimrod brought culture and commerce and language and government, even religion, came under one big tent. Nimrod was a unifier of mankind, and yet he had ulterior motives, did he not? He wanted to be the sub for the Savior. He wanted men to worship him. Nimrod defied God's decree to scatter and multiply, and the world today is still under that command. Nothing's wrong with cooperation among nations. The United Nation is not inherently evil, but when efforts are made to abolish national boundaries and to consolidate governments, that's when we need to question the motive. For inevitably, the Antichrist will somehow seize authority over every tribe, tongue and nation We're told in verse 8 all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world if anyone has an ear let him hear he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity he who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword here is the patience and the faith of the saints Boy, suddenly at this point, God's judgments will be swift and decisive. 
There'll be less room for repentance and for second chances. Life will become harder, and it will require patience and faith. Now, remember, chapter 13 isn't just about the beast. It's about the beastie boys, and that's why verse 11 reads, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. This second beast is the Antichrist ecclesiastical sidekick. He's a religious leader who appears gentle as a lamb, but he speaks the same threats and lies as Satan. You remember, Jesus too had a forerunner. It was John the Baptist who paved the way for the Messiah. And this second beast will pave the way for the Antichrist. He'll provide religious sanction for this future ruler. Imagine this man in the world's great cathedrals, in its mosques, even in the temple, encouraging all people to lay aside their differences and rally together under this one banner, the banner of the beast. Verse 12 tells us more. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. This man will become the high priest of heresy and apostasy. In Revelation, he's also called the false prophet. He performs great signs, we're told, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. This priest of the beast will even work miracles. Now remember, Satan is a great deceiver. He doesn't just do miracles. He tries to replicate biblical miracles. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 predicts that Elijah will appear before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Elijah will appear. I believe he'll be one of the two witnesses. But this is why the second beast calls down fire from the sky. He's not an Elvis impersonator. He's an Elijah impersonator. Malachi predicted Elijah would precede the coming of the Messiah. This guy claims to be him. Verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, here's where the plot thickens. When we think of an image or an idol, we think of a statue or a trinket sitting on a mantle. But here is an animated image. The image of the beast, it has breath. It speaks. It discerns those that are worshiping it. It enforces a mandatory allegiance. It executes people who refuse to bow to the beast. Here is high-tech idolatry. What is this third beastie boy, this virtual idol? We're not sure. But today's technology certainly provides all kinds of possibilities. Is this a touch-sensitive screen people are interacting with? Is this a computer-generated hologram? Or a robot with artificial intelligence? Imagine millions of folks on the World Wide Web simultaneously interacting with this image. Idolatry goes live stream. This is online worship of the beast. We can see how it would play out in our day. 
And John continues speaking of the image of the beast in verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, 100 years ago, this would have made very little sense, but not today. In 2012, this kind of technology is all around us. Money and information are constantly being passed electronically. In a cash-oriented society, you could never control commerce with a mark on a person's body. But today, cash is a relic of the past. I get tickled with my kids. We go to the restaurant somewhere, and I say, leave the tip. And they say, I can't. I say, don't you have any cash? No, we don't carry cash, Dad. Kids today don't carry cash. In the future, buying and selling will all be done digitally, electronically. It was funny. Even when I ran the Reagan 5K a couple of years ago, they gave me a microchip that I put on my tennis shoe that recorded my official time when I crossed the finish line. A slow time, by the way, but it recorded it. One day soon, we'll inject a silicone chip under your baby's skin to keep track of your child. And it might not be a bad idea. If you've ever momentarily lost a child at the shopping mall, you realize that this has an upside. The technology in and of itself is not bad. The problem is that this is what the Antichrist is going to use to blackmail the world into worshiping him. To get the mark, you'll have to bow. You'll have to pledge your allegiance to the beast. Imagine the excruciating choices that people will be forced to make. Stand up for Jesus or watch your baby starve. You've got to get the mark to buy or sell. Sell your soul to Satan for a bowl of soup? That'll be the choice people will have to make. Hey, I don't want to be around when that choosing starts. Finally, verse 18, and here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding Calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. 666. Now, if we gave out an award for the verse that has drawn the most speculation, it would have to go to verse 18. Everyone from Nero to Hitler to Kennedy to Kissinger to Gorbachev to Clinton. You remember Gorbachev had that little strange birthmark on his forehead? Pastor James has got one too. And that's why I sometimes call him the beast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but everybody thought that little birthmark there on the Gorbachev's head had something to do with 666. That was kind of silly. Clinton, Tony Blair, Obama. They've all been associated with this number 666. Yet here's a different concept I want to give you that I want you to to kind of mull over. Throughout the Bible, the number six is the number of man. For six is one less than seven, the number of God's perfection. And man at his very best falls short of God's ideal. And yet next to Jesus, the one man in the Bible who may have come closest to perfection was King Solomon. You remember in Luke chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus said of the lilies, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But he complimented Solomon on his glory. 
In Luke 11, verse 31, Jesus prays the wisdom of Solomon. In the Old Testament, Solomon had the distinction of being the wisest of the wise, the richest of the rich. He was world-renowned for his insight. The Queen of Sheba came up just to be amazed at what Solomon knew. King Solomon, as the Antichrist will be, he'll represent the epitome of human achievement. Now remember, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And there's only one other place in Scripture where the number 666 appears. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 13, where it lists Solomon's yearly allotment of gold as 666 talents. There's another connection between Solomon and this number 666. In 1 Kings chapter 10, you find that when you looked at Solomon's throne, guess what you saw? You saw six lions lining up on the left, six steps in the middle, and six lions lining up on the right. Again, when you saw, when you looked at his throne, you saw six, six, six. Now, here's an idea. When you think of the Antichrist, rather than think of Darth Vader or Osama bin Laden or Adolf Hitler, try thinking about King Solomon. You know, there's all kinds of parallels. David was a man of war, but because of it, he couldn't build the temple. Solomon was a man of peace and a temple builder. And that's how the beast will start out, isn't it? He'll be, bring about a false peace that will allow the rebuilding of the temple. Both will be admired for their wisdom and their problem solving. Both will start out as God-fearing people, but will eventually lead people into idolatry. Both will amass great fortunes and power. I mean, the parallels are numerous. Suffice it to say, the beast doesn't just show his fangs. He doesn't show his fangs until he has the world in its clutches. Evil is not so easily identified. And thus, in many ways, the beast will be like King Solomon. And the Antichrist will be further proof that man apart from God, even at his wisest, even at his very best, is still corrupt to the core and brazenly rebellious. In the end, the great human hope will turn beastly. Chapter 13 closes with the Antichrist on top of the world. But don't worry when you see evil rise up, for Jesus is the king of the jungle, and he's going to return to cage all of the beasts. I guarantee it. And we'll read more about it in chapter 14.